understand the place that God's moral commandments play in the Christian life. It's always to direct, to guide, to redirect, to lead our hearts back toward loving God first and foremost. That's the purpose of the commandments. That's the place that the moral commandments of Christian scripture, of biblical scripture, play in Christian faith. Welcome to another Prepared to Answer podcast. My name is Sean Walker and I'm joined by Scott Steen. How are you, Scott? Good. Good. We are on episode 11. Of this series, yeah. Yes, of our deconstruction series. And today's question that we are going to tackle is, are Christians too preoccupied with morality and not enough with loving people? And maybe we can unpack that question a little bit. And when we say morality, what what are we talking about? I think what morale, well, in generally, what morality refers to is uh, the kind of conduct we, we live out, our actions, our moral behaviors. Yeah. Are, are we so concerned? Are we, are we over, too preoccupied with people's behaviors mm-hmm. and the kinds of things they're doing than we are with really just loving people? So that would be rule following. Yeah, I think you essence. could put it that way. Yeah. 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 Okay. You know what, Sean? I think it, it's, uh, this is kind of a caricature that Christians... I think are often the, I think it's often painted about Christians. Here's a great illustration. I'll admit. From a theologian? Are we talking about a historical theologian? Not quite a theologian, no. It's from, it's from my, uh, my, part of my wasted youth where I did watch (laughs) a lot of television. This is a clip, a short clip from one of the earlier seasons of The Simpsons. And one of my favorite characters was Ned Flanders. Ned Flanders. Everybody loves Ned Flanders. Everyone loves Ned Flanders. <laughs> <A diddly. laughs> diddly. Anyway, here's a great, I think this is a great encapsulation for all, for all the criticisms you could level at the Simpsons as a, as a medium or, you know, as a form of entertainment. One of the things it was and still I think is good at is capturing in a comedic way the perceptions of culture. And they, they, have, they hold no favorites. Everybody's a target. Here's a great example, I think, of what is a common caricature of what Christianity is really all about. Let's just play this clip. Why me, Lord? Where have I gone wrong? I've always been nice to people. I don't drink or dance or swear. I've even kept kosher just to be on the safe side. I've done everything the Bible says, even the stuff that contradicts the other stuff. What more could I do? So I think that, you know, there's a caricature, sure, right? It's sure. all about following the rules. And, and if you don't follow the rules, what's happening, Lord? I'm not following the rules. You know, I think there's a couple of things we could say, Sean. Yeah. In one sense, I think every Christian struggles against the lure of rule following, right? Of morality. Sure. Which is just religiosity, right? It's righteousness through works. And this is nothing new. Uh, and it's a frequent theme in gospel teaching. And even going back to the first century, the Apostle Paul is addressing, right, the concern. And he says in Ephesians 2.10, he says to the Ephesians, remember, it's not by works. It's by faith that you're saved through grace, not by works so that no one can boast. So it's quite clear. It is. And I mean, you know, so a, a preoccupation with morality is a danger for every Christian. And I mean, I've, I've grown up in the church and I don't know how many times I've heard sermons reminding us, look, at, it's not about the things we do, right? God accepts us by his grace, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not by our own works. And yet there is this, there is a propensity, there is a tendency. And so we have to continually preach the gospel to ourselves. There's a tendency for us to swing back into 
being preoccupied with making sure we're following all the rules. So why do you think that is? Why, is, why do you think we swing back into that? Well, let me turn it around. Why do you think? <laughs> okay. You're always asking me questions. <laughs> I put it on, put you on the hot seat. Yeah. yeah, you know what? And, that's, and I would completely agree with you that, you know, probably even within the last couple of months, we have heard sermons to that effect. Yeah, sure. Right? Sure. And so why do we fall back into that? You know, a part of it, I think, has to do with control, that, that we feel like we want to be in control. And that might even relate to our salvation, that we feel we want some piece of controlling whether or not we're saved. Okay. Um, possibly, too, uh, could be that we find that we achieve stuff by doing stuff. Yeah. So be it work, be it artistic pursuits, whatever it is, we do something to achieve something. Well, certainly how th- that's, that's how things work in the world, isn't it? Sure. I think you're right. I yeah. think you're right. I think... Like you said, it's control, it's achieving. I think that ultimately points back to really the root of sin, right? Which is pride. Right. I think when we realize the, the implications of the true implications of the gospel are we have nothing to offer God. Right? I think that scares us a little bit. Maybe, maybe it does. Yeah. It's, it's certainly humbling um, that, that we stand naked before him as far as anything to commend ourselves to his favor. We're sinful yeah. Full stop. So maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe it's just this, it's, it's the continual battle with pride that we have. And, and so, yeah, there's this, there's this tendency to just continue going back to this default of, you know what, it's something I've got to do. I've got to make God love me and I can somehow accomplish that. So what we're saying is many Christians and, and maybe even permeates into the church could be into some church teaching, into some church cultures that they are preoccupied with morality, with these rules, as opposed to loving people. Yeah, I think that's a definite possibility and, and may even reflect real experiences of some, you know, even some of our listeners who are now struggling to hold on to their faith. Uh, and, and I can appreciate how faith-destroying it could be and is, especially if, if, especially if you grow up in a faith environment, Sean, where the focus is a very legalistic adherence to moral rules, right? Like if that's your church culture growing up and how difficult it would be then to maintain the belief that, that that kind of expression of faith could somehow be seen as the result of a gospel that we call the good <laughs> news. Right. Good news, everyone. You better follow the rules. Right. Or we'll look down our noses at you and you're a bad person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes sense when you hear people deconstructing sometimes when they talk about the freedom they feel in their deconstruction process sometimes or at the end of it that they're free of yeah. this. Yeah. And, and you, you say, well, no, <laughs> the gospel message is freedom. Right. What, what has gone wrong? Right. Yeah, you're right. I think there's something terribly wrong when someone is ostensibly escaping from their faith commitment or community describes the relief as a feeling of freedom. It means they were in bondage somehow. Yeah. So, I mean, in one sense, then I understand the question because it is a struggle that every Christian struggles with from time to time. And, and let's face it, even some churches that may stray into uh, an unhealthy or even unbiblical emphasis on just let's follow the rules. And that becomes the expression of Christian faithfulness. Um, but I think there's another more specific sense in which this question, I, Sean, is, is particularly relevant that I think we need to address. 
And I think in more recent days, you know, it's society's revisioning of sexuality that has raised this sense in many people's minds that Christians are too preoccupied specifically with sexual morals than they are with loving people. And, and I would say that reflects the general impression held by many, and even by many Christians, that where churches have, and understandably so, that churches in this shifting culture have taken, you know, firm stands on affirming things like um, a stand against gay marriage or homosexual lifestyle or transgender identities, that this sends the message that the church is being unloving towards those who would claim those kinds of identities, that, that these are very, you know, exclusive and hurtful and, and kind of punitive kinds of positions to take um, against, a, you know, people who would, who would wear those identities. Sure. Do you think there's any truth to it? Well, what do you think? I gotta, okay. Who's doing the podcast here? <laughs> well, I, I thought we both were. I thought this was a partnership. No, here. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. So you know what? There is probably some truth. But then I think we also need to step back to and understand. I mean, Scripture says that the world will be opposed to us. Well, yeah. And so uh, when you see a world looking into the church and they're opposed to begin with, mm-hmm. what are they looking at and what are they looking for? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people about this and, and even a lot of conversations with pastors and, and in my, in my conversations and even in my own thinking through these, these kinds of matters where the church finds itself wanting to be salt and light and a witness and a, and a place where people find acceptance and, and love in the context of the church, there's this there is this continual tension that we feel as Christians mm-hmm. that on the one hand, we want to, we, we, not, we don't just want to, we need to uphold and affirm the teachings of scripture, the historic biblical Christian faith in all of its aspects. And of course, including what it teaches us, what God teaches us about how he's created us male and female, what he's created marriage for, what our bodies are meant to accomplish and meant to be as we are his image bearers. So we want to uphold those things. So, you know, when, when, a, when the culture is, is speaking directly against what God says is true, we have no choice but to proclaim mm-hmm. truth and teach it and be clear, no, this is what God tells us. And we, right. cannot, we cannot compromise on that truth. On the other hand, we've got this situation where in our culture, these kinds of things, it's, it's, we're not just talking about behaviors anymore in people's minds. That things like homosexuality or transgenderism, those aren't just things that people do, but they are the way that people see themselves. It's who they are. And so here's this tension, right? We're mm-hmm. trying to uphold God's truth, but in doing so, it's in, in many ways implicitly communicating that we stand against who people consider themselves to be. It, it's really difficult as the church. True. And so does the church sometimes get it wrong? in trying to walk what I think is an extremely fine line of balancing the truth of God's word mm-hmm. with our, our, our love and grace and compassion to those in the world who we want to share Christ's love with. Yeah, I think we get it wrong all the time. Sure. Um, and, and we just, but I don't, I don't think that then excuses us to try and to, to somehow give up, nor to, to go to extremes of response and say, well, then it's just right. going to be about loving people and we won't, you know, we won't bring right. God's truth into the mat, into the issue, or it's just going to be about affirming yeah. God's truth. And, you know, we just don't care what people think. 
Yeah. So in the midst of that, I can totally see why uh, that that can th- why this is becoming more a concern of, you know, Christians are just these people preoccupied with moral stands and they don't really care about people. I understand where that can come from. Sure. So getting back to that original question, sometimes churches yeah. can become too preoccupied with these morality questions yeah. uh, at the expense of loving people. I think so. Right. Which is which is something probably we would guess would be the expected answer. Mm-hmm. But as we're looking at this series, what our concern is, Scott, is really with uh, someone that is struggling with their faith. Right. And this could be due to an experience in a church where morality was, you know, the thing, mm-hmm. the key thing of being a Christian was yeah. following these rules. Right. And then so they could be struggling because of this overemphasis on morality and feeling less than loved, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if that person is listening today, Scott, or maybe a, a friend of someone that's listening might be going through this, uh, what are they supposed to do? Yeah, well, I think that's a really hard question. <laughs> sure. um, there are a couple of things I want to say. I think first is, is just to maybe, by way of warning, I think we need to beware of our culture's tendency, Sean, uh, I don't know if this is the right way of putting it, but what I see is that there, that our culture has really adopted a way of thinking that I would describe as thinking narratively. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that there's this tendency to judge people based on the group they belong to. Like we're starting mm-hmm. to, you know, we yeah. start, we're starting to segment people and, and our culture into almost what I call tribes, whether it's political or social or economic or racial or religious, Right. And so we develop narratives or have narratives developed about us, right, because we belong to this particular tribe. And so once the narrative has been has been cast and now I've, I've realized that you're part of that tribe, then I then it's, it's like now I understand you. Right. I know what you're about. And so we judge people based on a narrative, Mm-hmm. rather than necessarily our direct experience. I'm not saying that's the case for everyone who may be listening. They may be, in fact, saying, no, no, I'm talk- I'm a, I'm expe- I've experienced this, and that's what I'm reacting to. But I think in a lot of cases, even our experiences, we tend to process through narrative. I, I just want to caution people to, to try, rather than to think narrative, try to think locally, specifically think about your own circumstances and your own you know, situation and the people, you know, if, if this is a struggle with Christians, which Christians, right? Not the class of people out there called sure. Christians, right? Which ones? Um, is, yeah. is this your church? Is this your faith community? Try and, to think locally. Yeah. And I would say this is probably good advice, Scott, over a broad range of topics, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. And struggles. Oh, it is. Oh, right. Oh, this would solve so many of our problems <laughs> in terms of the, 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 the uh, polarizing conflicts. Yeah. And I always find it refreshing when all of a sudden, you know, you have someone, you, you get someone who's like from a, a conservative camp and someone from a, a liberal camp, and then they actually take the time to talk to each other and they walk away saying, you know, I'm surprised that we have more in common than we thought. Oh, that's because we talk to each other, right? <laughs> um, so is it fair to say we've solved all the problems? Absolutely. We can, we there can we go. finish the podcast. Thanks for <laughs> tuning in today to, <laughs> to prepared to answer podcast. Prepared to answer problem solving. Yes. Okay. So that's what I say. Just yeah. beware of that tendency, which I think has been, it's being hard baked into our minds. Just that's how we think. 
Secondly, uh, is, is to be careful not to fall into thinking that when we're talking about morality versus loving people, that it's not either or. Right. And I'm sure no one would say it that way, but I think there is a danger in, even in this line of questioning that sees the work of, of moral teaching in the church and the work of loving people as somehow being two separate things that the church does. And what we need to do in churches is to keep these two separate things in balance when rightly understood, everything we do as the church, everything we do as Christians should flow from our love for Jesus and for each other. Sure. So it sounds like the problem isn't necessarily overemphasis or underemphasis on moral teaching in the church, but it sounds like the problem is when the moral teaching is done without love. Right. Well, I mean, if you, look, if you, if you consult the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13... The problem, uh, there's a problem with anything we do as Christians if it's done without love, right? But, but yes, I think, I think that's a, a good summary, right? So I, I think what is really important for someone who's struggling in their faith, and, and maybe part of the struggle is feeling like your church experience is one of uh, overemphasis on moral teaching, rule, you know, keeping the rules. Mm-hmm. When the priority should be on loving people like Jesus, I think the important thing to do is to explore what I think, and that's what I'd like to do now, to explore what I think is, is an essential gospel question about the place that moral teaching has in the Christian faith. Remember what we've been saying all, all along through the series, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to encourage people, if you're, if you're struggling to hang on to or seeking to recover your faith from some kind of, you know, if you're going through a faith crisis of some kind, that the key to recovering your faith is to recover the faith. So, so here's the question I want to explore together, Sean is answering the question, what part does morality play in living out true biblical Christian faith? In other words, how does biblical moral teaching fit into following Jesus, right? Yeah, because often we get this picture of Jesus as just the loving with the children coming around him, and he is just, he is just love, yeah. and that's it. Yeah. And so we get back to that balance between, well, if he's just love, he couldn't be about moral teaching. Right. Or, yeah, you're right. Or almost like, you know what, if we really learned how to love Jesus, we wouldn't need moral teaching because then we would just be like Jesus. If yeah. that were true, the New Testament wouldn't be so full of moral teaching. <laughs> it can't be that simple. But so, so, so that's what the answer I want to explore. Yeah, so, so where in the New Testament? So yeah, let's well, jump into that. So we, I mean, we can't teach the whole New Testament in a podcast, but so, so I want to look at one instance in, uh, this is an event from Jesus' life, his earthly life and teaching that actually Mark records in his gospel, the gospel of Mark. It's in Mark chapter 10. And this is one event uh, where Jesus uh, is confronted by or approached by uh, a rich young man, a rich young ruler among the Jews. Um, if you grew up in Sunday school, it's probably a familiar story to you. If, if not, I'm just going to read quickly. Um, this, it's only about five verses, but here's the account. Mark records this. As Jesus started on his way, so Jesus had been going around the countryside doing his teaching, miracles, all the rest. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And then it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So, Sean, let me just ask you. At first glance, to you, what does it seem like Jesus' answer to this man is implying? That not only did he need to follow all the commandments he had followed, because he had followed all the commandments. Right. But that in addition, he had to sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor. So he had really not done enough moral deeds in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So this seems to go back to our moral teaching question. Right, right. It almost looks like, wow, he'd followed all the commandments. And so Jesus' response was, oh, but there's something more you need to do. Right. Okay. On surface, it certainly looks that way. That is not what Jesus is saying. Uh, in fact, quite He's been misquoted, <laughs> <laughs> probably more than this, more than once. I'm yes. sure. Yes. Um, I want to go back and unpack this passage and I want to point out three things that I think are very important. Okay. First notice Jesus counter question, right? He says to the man, why do you call me good? Good teacher. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His counter question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So right away, he starts with a counter question, which really is designed to confront the assumptions behind the young man's question, rather than directly answering the question itself. Because he wants the young man to, he wants to redirect him to begin thinking about what it is he believes to be true, which prompts the question in the first place, right? What must I do Mm -hmm. to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. You know, and so, I mean, that's the basis for every worldly moral system, right? Jewish, every other one, too. If I simply follow X, then I will truly be good. And whatever God, and in this case, this, is, this man's a Jew, so the God of the Bible, he will accept me. And, and, and I don't mean this to question the man's motives. There's nothing in the text here to suggest that this man was somehow insincere or, or puffed up or arrogant. I think the, I think the body language that Mark even describes shows that this man is genuine. He, he comes to Jesus and falls on his knees. Yeah. So this is not some puffed up egoist, right? No, that would seem like the posture of a humble man. Uh, yeah, Someone yeah, he falls on his really knees. wanted to be Right, yeah, yeah, I think so. So the text seems to represent him as truly sincere. I mean, he ran up to Jesus, falls on his knees, and then Jesus replies, no one is good except God alone. And so what Jesus is reminding him of is, is what Jews already believed from Scripture, that God and God alone is the source of all goodness, right? Good, it's not some abstract quality or abstract property, sure. right? Uh, that, that exists way out in here um, or way out in space. Rather, God himself is good. And so, so nothing may be called good except that it conforms to God's nature and God's character, right? God didn't decide one day, you know, he created the earth and decided, well, now what am I, now what's going to be good for them? And, you know, stroking his chin kind of went through and made up a list. Goodness is whatever conforms to the character and nature of God. So here's the first point to understanding Jesus' meaning. The man ran up to Jesus out of a genuine desire to be good. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't outside his grasp, but what Jesus wanted to show him was that being good is born from a desire for what is good. And if God alone is good, then the only true path to goodness begins with our desire for God. Wow. So, so the first thing Jesus does is completely confronts the, the false assumptions behind the man's question and directs him towards where his mind and heart truly need to be focused in the first place. And, and that then is, that's then is Jesus' intended meaning that gets fleshed out in the rest of the exchange. He then goes on to say, 
you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit. He goes through all the, yeah. the, the six commandments. Interesting. He adds, you shall not defraud, which actually isn't one of the Ten Commandments. But I think he, he slips that in here because this, I think oftentimes in that culture and setting, people became rich by doing bad against the poor. Sure. Right. He throws it in. But he basically lists the kind of the moral commandments of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Notice that Jesus doesn't include the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Uh, that'll be important later on. We'll just make that note. But anyway, he, he lists all the rest of them. And the man responds, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And again, the text gives us no reason to conclude that this wasn't true. It, it was well accepted in Judaism that strict and flawless adherence to the prescriptions of the law was possible. That's what the Pharisees were all about, right? They felt that they could keep the law flawlessly. It was possible. Really? Right. But what Jesus, in terms of the form of the law... Uh, right, the prescriptions, okay. the yes. rules. Yes. But what Jesus wanted to teach this man and wants to teach us is that obedience to the law is not the purpose of the law. And that's what the Pharisees had wrong. Absolutely. Its, its purpose is growing our love for God. And I think this gets, this gets clearly fleshed out when, when Jesus is confronted uh, back in Matthew by the Pharisees. And they ask him, you know, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus, in Matthew 22? And, and Jesus, this is what Matthew records. Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets, right? Everything in the law hangs on the great commandment, love the Lord your God. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus wants this young man to see, and and for us to see, is that following God's law was never meant to make God love us, but to make us love God. That's like flipping it on its head. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And and this explains also his rebuke of the Pharisees, religious leaders, a few chapters earlier in Mark 7, when he's quoting Isaiah— he says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. He's talking to the, you know, the Pharisees and the religious leaders now, the rule followers. He says, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, they were making up rules for themselves, but they were also strictly following the rules that laid out in the Old Testament. Yes. Right. But they turned them into commandments of men by making them into a means of earning God's favor, right? right? You see, the error of the religious leaders in Israel is that they turn God's law into a formula for righteousness. Do this, and God will love you. God will accept you. God will bless you. When what it's really meant for was to reveal God's loveliness, which, which simply fuels our love for God. And, and again, you go to Psalm 119, Sean. Psalm 119 is this great long song, prayer of praise, to the loveliness of God's law. Yeah. And Psalm 11997, the psalmist, he says, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Okay. So then how in the world does this work? I mean, when we see God's law, we often see this as this huge list of rules and regulation that makes God look like some type of schoolmaster, right? Like a judge. Yep. 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 And I think that's exactly what this rich young ruler thought and how he expected God's commandments to work. Right. He said, teacher, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. In other words, so God must think I'm okay because I've kept all the rules. Right. Right. He was probably thrilled to hear this. It goes back to initially our discussion on the fact that we want to feel like we've done something. 
Right. Right. This young rich ruler probably has done quite a bit and probably achieved quite a bit. Yeah. And and then and then therefore our joy then is directed towards really our self-congratulations. Right. Pat on the back. <laughs> I've done it. Right. right. I have achieved acceptance with God. So I think that's exactly what he thought too. So then, then here's the third observation. Watch now how Jesus brings the true power of the law to bear on this young man's heart. Okay. The, to me, this is fascinating. Right. Verse 21, Jesus looked, and it's interesting, the word looked there isn't just like, you know, I was looking over in this direction. It's, a, it's, an, it's an emphatic look. It's like he, he looked at him in this sustained way. It's like he looked into the man. Yeah. Jesus looked at him, and note this, and loved him. Yeah, and I'll tell you, uh, that made me pause, that, that way that you described that, and just envisioning Christ looking at you. Yeah. And that's a good description. Yeah. And you can, you can envision that. And, and the reason why I, I, I wanted to park on this passage is because of this verse. Because going back to our original question, right? This idea that somehow concern for, for God's moral commandments and loving people is somehow two separate things. Jesus looks at him in the midst of this conversation and he loves him. And out of his love for him, he confronts him with the command of God. And here's what he says. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Now, if we're not careful, we'll assume what Jesus is doing is just adding one more command, right? Which is, I think, the way we, right. in an initial reading, that's yes. how you read it. Yeah. As if Jesus was saying, you know, he'd not really fulfilled all the commands, as he said, but that was not his point. Remember earlier, we, we observed that Jesus had omitted this commandment from the list when he yeah. said, you know the commands, and he listed them all, mm -hmm. but he left out this command. And I think he, that was intentional, because while the other commands speak directly to moral actions on surface, right. don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit sure. adultery, right? Honor your father and mother. Do the right things. Yes. This commandment speaks directly to the heart. Do not covet, mm -hmm. desiring something other than that which God intends for you. you. You might even say that the commandment to not covet encapsulates all the rest, because coveting speaks directly to the question, what is it that I desire most? It goes right to the heart. Yeah. So Jesus, being the Son of God, looked, like really looked. He looked into this man. And he loved him, looking into him and knowing him. He already knew the answer, that he loved his money more than he loved God. He kept all the commandments, kept all the rules, but his heart didn't desire God more than his money. But then notice what Mark writes, right? We said this. Jesus looked at him. He knew this. And he loved him. And the outflow of Jesus' love, knowing this man's heart, which loved his money before God, was to confront him with the full force of God's law at exactly the point where he needed to be confronted. Give up your money. Not as one more moral duty to check off the list, but as the necessary step to gaining, for this man, real treasure. Treasure in heaven. Give up the thing that you have placed in your heart as your heart's treasure ahead of God. Mm -hmm. And God's law makes it clear, right? You've got an idol in your heart, and that's what is keeping you from eternal life. And God's law exposes the idols of our hearts. 
and then points us back to the only true object of worship that can save us. So Jesus' reply wasn't meant to embarrass or shame the man. It was meant to expose his greatest need. Not to live like someone who knows how to live the right way, but living the right way by knowing the someone we were made to live for. Hence his final words, then come follow me. Right? That's where he ends. That's where he's taking the man. What a great dive into scripture to show that. And why would we not expect this? That perfect balance of love and morality. Right. From Christ. And, and to understand the place that God's moral commandments play in the Christian life. It's always to direct, to guide, to redirect, to lead our hearts back toward loving God first and foremost. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your That's the purpose of the commandments. That's the place that the moral commandments of Christian scripture, of biblical scripture, play in Christian faith. So, so we can't, it can't be an either or, right? right? Either we're about, you know, morality or we're about loving people. You can't divorce the two. No. And so we shouldn't try, we shouldn't try to. Sure. Right? So it's been good to look into what scriptures talks about when they talk about this morality and, and what we perceive as rule following. And so maybe we can move into uh, some pointers, some help. Uh, if our listeners or they know someone uh, that is maybe not listening, that is struggling with this, that, that they're struggling within their faith, thinking that this is rule following, that I have to follow these rules and it's very dreary. Yeah, sure. A couple things I'd say by way of, you know, here's some takeaways. One right from why I wanted to unpack that, that part of that passage with Jesus and understanding the connection, the, the, you know, the place that God's moral commands play in the Christian faith, in the life of faith. If your Christian experience does feel like nothing more than dreary rule following, then you are not experiencing true Christian faith. In, in essence, it's almost like we've created a God that isn't the God that we know of. Right. Well, if, if, if it's not the Christian God you're worshiping, if it's not the God of the Bible, it's somebody else. Right. Even if it's uh, a God created in that sure. God's name. Sure. Um, listen to what Jesus said, John 10, 10. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life. That's his followers. Mm-hmm. That they may have life and have it to the full. And dreary rule following doesn't sound like Dreary rule following does not sound like what Jesus was promising there. Did Ned Flanders have a full life? I don't think so. So, so, I mean, if that's your experience, I think the one one encouragement I I can offer you is if that's your experience and you feel unsettled in your faith about that, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's not what Christ came to give us, right? Um, so you should feel unsettled. You should feel discontent. Um, the second thing I'd say, just by way of encouragement, then in response to that, then, then let me encourage you to take Jesus at his word. I mean, if you're, if you're sick of Christianity because it seems like dreary, loveless rule following, please don't give up on Jesus. No matter how weak your faith might feel, you know, take this single faith building step even right now, just to decide in your mind that you're sick of, of a Christian faith that feels like dreary rule following, this loveless rule following. Good. Cast that aside and say, okay, I'm sick of that. I'm done with that. Jesus, I'm going to pursue what it is exactly that you've said you're giving me, mm-hmm. right? 
entrusting you. Full life. What is this full life? You know, I'm not going to tolerate a Christian experience that feels like dreary, loveless rule following. That that's some kind of counterfeit distortion. So, I mean, here are just a few cues from Scripture as to what your Christian life should be like, right? And again, let's take Jesus at His word. Uh, in John six, uh, well, I already mentioned John ten ten. Yeah. In John six thirty seven, Jesus says, "All those who the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away." So it's acceptance. The, the Christian faith, yeah. There is this. There is this unshakable acceptance by God through Jesus, and he'll, he'll never cast you aside. It has nothing to do whether you've followed the rules. No, no. Uh, listen to what he says in Mark 10. Uh, the, actually, just a few verses after the passage we read about the rich young ruler, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. There is real blessing promised to us in Christ. Maybe not the blessings that the world says are blessings, right? But real life-fulfilling blessings, especially in, in, in the context he's speaking here of Christians who left their homes and families to follow Jesus and in the process their home, their families, you know, rejected them. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, well, in me, you're going to receive a hundred times that. And, and we spoke about this in the last, uh, last episode or before that, Sean, we talked about, you know, uh, do we need the church? Right. And there is the blessing of God mm-hmm. through Christ in giving us a, a, an extended family in Jesus. He calls us, he places, places us into his own family, the church. Uh, listen to what he says in John 15. He says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I'd love to unpack that passage oh, alone, yeah. just because it sounds like... Oh, it, so you don't read it, as we've just said, to say, oh, so we keep the commands right. and then we're into God's love. Is that the way? No, 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 no. We keep the commands. And that is a demonstration, mm-hmm. right, of our love that is already secured for us in Christ. Our love for God, that is. Because Jesus didn't keep his father's commands in order to be accepted by the father as his son. Yes. He kept the father's commands because he was his father's son, and he loved the father. Mm-hmm. He delighted to do whatever his father pleased. Um, but, but there's this promise of love and joy and peace, like, you know, given to us. Jesus says in Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. There's this wonderful juxtaposition in the Christian life. Yes, we will face trials. But these trials will give us a new life purpose. Right. There's, you know, there's purpose now. We give our lives up for Christ. There's a cost to that. But in return, he gives us life that we can't right. lose, real lasting life. Uh, we will find it. And then he says in John 14, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. My father will love the one who loves me, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The, the gift we receive, the, the promise we get, 
This is, this is the real blessing of the Christian life, is that we get more of Jesus. The more we follow him, the more of himself he gives to us. He is our reward. So if you're discouraged in your faith, leverage that into determination. With God's help, pray. You know, Ask God to help you leverage that into determination to not be satisfied until you attain to the life that Jesus promised to give to anyone who follows him. Full life. It, it sounds so good. So if I'm not experiencing that, then it's not because God's holding out on me. No. Right. I'm no. missing something. So no. God, help me to find it. So even if we just went through those quickly again, Scott. Yeah. Full life. Yes. Acceptance. Yeah. Real blessings. Mm-hmm. Love, joy, and peace. Trials, which we all go through. Yeah. But now trials with a purpose. Purpose. And it ends with knowing Jesus better. Yeah. What better way to live? Right. So, yeah, so I think, I think, you know, just by way of takeaway, I think that's where maybe I would leave it. If I could offer a bit of application. Great place to end this episode. And I'd encourage our listeners, if you have any questions, uh, to email us at info at preparedancer.org, or you can visit us at preparedancer.org as well. And until next episode, God bless. Thanks for listening to the Prepared Dancer podcast. You can get future episodes as well as listen to past episodes by subscribing on iTunes or Spotify. And you can get many other faith-building resources by following us on YouTube, Facebook, or finding us online at preparedtoanswer.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.